This is a kick in the grass with Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair on the Sportsnet Radio Network. By this time next week, the Premier League will be at mid-season. It's Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair here for another edition of a kick in the grass on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Uh, Jeff, your your Manchester United are still hanging in this title race. Uh, they're they're looking pretty rosy right now after that Liverpool loss to Southampton, which we saw a manager crying for the first time in the Premier League. Yeah, well, and I would have thought a couple of weeks ago the only manager crying would be Ole. <laughs> Yo, look, I, I'd like to be I, I'd like to be really optimistic. Uh, it's better they're they are they're they're better than I thought they'd be at least in terms of their place in the standings. What I really want to have happen now is I want to have them out of the FA Cup. I want them just to focus on the Premier League and the Europa League. I don't want anything else to, to interfere because really the fewer decisions Ole has to make, the fewer opportunities for Pogba to get hurt. By the way, he's questionable for Burnley. The, 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 you know, the fewer, it's going to be better if there's nothing standing between them and simply winning the Premier League. I guess that's that. That's what I'm trying to say. So be eliminated and everything else and, and just focus on the Premier League title. Well, that's the kind of year, and we talked about that at, at the start, and, and this goes across all the leagues. You know, if you're going to be uh, balancing the Champions League and uh, or the Europa League, a cup, and the league, like you in, in most years, you have to sacrifice it, but when you look at the, the fixture schedule, I mean, it's just, it's impossible to juggle it all. And by the judge of the early ongoings of the January transfer window, it doesn't feel like there's going to be a lot of business being done by, by most of the teams here like we normally see, where you, you try to make a tweak or two, add a little depth piece here and there if you can, but so many teams are cash-strapped, Jeff. Uh, this is the reality of of the the COVID season that we're in and the fixture schedule that we have. You have to make a decision whether you're Manchester United, Liverpool, Juventus, Barcelona, Real Madrid. I don't care who you are. You're going to have to make a decision on one or the other. Yeah, and, and I think you know, my concern with Man Manchester United is the same concern as last year. It's the same concern, clearly as it was going into the season, and that is the unsettled back line. Uh, you know, Eric Bai looks like he's cementing his place in the side. What happens? He has a neck injury in the FA Cup. <laughs> this is what I, this is what I mean. Yeah. This is what I mean. The, the, the biggest issue for this team are those two center backs. That that's everything else. I think you can, you know, Juan Bissaka hasn't been great. Luke, I mean, you can, that other stuff will take care of itself. If you address the situation in, in the middle of that back line and uh, it, <laughs> You're right. I, I, you know, they've been linked with the usual suspects in the window. I don't think anything's going to happen. Um, you know, I'd love for Leipzig to to move off Upamecano, but why would they right now? Based on where they are, he's he's pretty important to where to Leipzig's position. So, having said that, uh, if I'm not going to get anybody in, boy, I just assume limit the number of of opportunities for guys to get hurt and. I, you're right. Every every manager is going to have to make that decision. And absolutely every manager in every league at some point in the next, I would say in the next three weeks, Danny, they're going to have to make that decision. So uh, multiple questions coming in uh, for a kick in the grass, and a lot of them having to do with uh, what you, Jeff Blair, would want to get 
your Manchester United for the title run. Is is that it? Is it just is it just a center back? I would take one center back. I take Obamacano. That would be it. Now a lot of other teams would take him as well, but uh, that that's the guy. To my way of thinking, that's the guy. Koulibaly is another name that's been out there forever and ever. That's the type of player that Manchester United needs. They don't need they don't need anybody up front. And Cavani. I think, you know, Cavani's going to do a job for them. I'm, I'm okay with what they have up front. I mean, the midfield is just, right now, Ole, does, Ole has too many players. I don't think you need another addition there. McTominay has really come into his own and, and has really kind of, along with Fred of all people, they seem to have solidified that area. So I'm okay there. But you are not going to win. I'll just say, you are not going to win the Premier League title with Lindelof and Maguire as your two center backs. It will not happen. Well, you mentioned Upamecano. You mentioned Koulibaly. You know, the one thing, and maybe you have to look at the the Spurs match where they got obliterated. Um, but a, a lot of times, even in the Champions League, this got exposed. They, they just need pace in the back line. A little bit more pace in the back line. Because they can they can get beat, uh, they can get lost in behind, and I think for for Manchester United that's one thing they desperately need. But overall, you, we look at this Premier League table and it's incredibly tight. I mean, yeah, most good. leagues most leagues are tighter than than they usually are right now at this point in the halfway mark of the season. Um, but especially the Premier League where it can go very deep. Uh, Liverpool's up there, obviously. Manchester United, Manchester City's not out of it. Tottenham's got some games in hand; they can get back into this race. I, I mean, how do how do we reevaluate this Premier League table halfway through the season? Yeah, I don't. I and you know, you haven't mentioned yet the fact that we are now just starting to see. I think COVID nineteen really, really gum up the works. Right, we're seeing it with the fixture. Uh, with this week's fixture, that's only going to get worse. I think it's safe to say it appears as if all the the discipline that football players were showing during the first wave of the pandemic has gone has gone out the window. Uh, I have real concerns, frankly, for the first time, whether or not the Premier League season is going to be able to finish when it wants to finish. I think we may be in a situation where you're going to see a lot of games banged. Uh, it's baseball slang for a lot of games canceled. And I don't know where it goes. I don't know where it goes after that. But, you know, if you get down to points, points average or things of that nature, this is the, the premise. The Premier League's going to be more confused this year than any other than any other season of recent time. And, and you know, normally when you look at the Premier, you go, well, OK, there's a group of four teams and then there's a bunch of teams that could kind of make stuff interesting. I, I don't know. I look at this league right now. I'm not willing to go to sleep in Southampton. I'm certainly not willing to sleep in Leicester. You know, I, I think Arsenal and Chelsea, there's, I, I may have been guilty of, you know, giving sort of looking at them as being a little closer to their ETA than they really are. But it would not surprise me if we have a surprise package in one of those top four spots. You know, I keep waiting for Southampton to collapse. That hasn't happened. Leicester is Lester's Lester. They have Jamie Vardy. They've got Schmeichel. <laughs> you know, they're they're they've got a terrific coach. So I I, I think we're gonna have to put up with this, put up with it. I think we're going to have to enjoy this all year. Manchester City is the team for me. 
you know, where I, I kind of wrote them off earlier uh, in the season, and there they are, um, just lingering in the background on 29 points, uh, but with a couple of matches in hand. And they've started to play a lot better. I think Ruben Diaz has, has really been one of the, the better signings of the summer to kind of solidify their back line. They've had so many injuries, so much, so much uh, turmoil with the squad, but they're still right there. And uh, we both had them as our preseason favorite to win. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, like the more time goes on, the more I'm like, this is the team I, I feel like is going to hit their stride at some point. Yeah. And I think they may have discovered something about themselves playing Raheem Sterling up front. You know, mm-hmm. I, and and I've often wondered, you know, that we we sit here and we wring our hands because Jesus isn't healthy and Aguirre isn't healthy, and you know, and I I I think they've discovered something about about how they can use Raheem Sterling, and I, I think that Pep has a lot more options than we may have originally thought. And the other thing that has happened, you mentioned Diaz. Who saw John Stones and Ruben Diaz? turning into arguably, arguably one of the top pairings in the mm-hmm. Prem right now. Like, could, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think, you know, let, let's, uh, leaving Fernandez aside, I, I, I think Diaz signing has been one of the most impactful signings in the Premier League in the last couple of years because he has, in a lot of ways, done for them what Van Dyke did for Liverpool. Maybe not the same because he's, you know, Van Dyke has that aura about him and had that aura about him that Diaz didn't. But my goodness, you watch them in any competition and he has brought out the best of Stones. And, you know, people have been waiting for a couple of years now for John Stones to rediscover his form. And all of a sudden now, Danny Man City, their back line is as solid as you'd want, probably. And they've got a better keeper than, than you know, than most teams in the Prem. Yeah, hard to hard to argue with uh, what they're showing in the back line right now, especially with the the injuries that Liverpool have suffered back there and unable to to field their their best eleven essentially. But Manchester City uh, goals against so far this year just thirteen. They're not scoring at the the rate that they had used to, but they've got the best defense in the division, and it's going to be a hell of a finish. Uh, to the Premier League season. Uh, coming up a little bit later on in the show, we're going to take a closer look at Serie A. I mean, the Premier League was uh, in FA Cup mode over the weekend, so we're going to take a look at some of the other leagues around Europe. We've got injury time coming at the end of the show as well, but uh, Serie A talk coming up with Siavush Falahi after uh, we speak with Robin Berner, uh, who covers League 1 and... We're going to talk about Jonathan David, the Canadian international who has not had a great start after his record transfer to Lille from the Belgian League over the offseason. Is starting to get it going. You see some things that you like, but there's a bigger conversation around the French League right now because of financial issues, and it centers around a broadcast deal that has fallen through. Let's bring in our next guest. He is Robin Berner, covering League 1. You can follow him on Twitter, at rberner, joining us now here on A Kick in the Grass. Thanks for this, Robin. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. How are you guys? Uh, we're, we're doing well. Uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for making time for us today. It's kind of a 
crazy year right now in uh, in France with the way that Liga has gone. But um, I think especially given the, the January transfer window, most people are interested right now in just the current economic state of French clubs given uh, their broadcast deal with MediaPro falling through. Um, what, what kind of a transfer window are we expecting in France? <laughs> yeah, you're right that the economic situation in France is, is pretty bleak for a lot of the clubs. Um, many of them don't even know if they'll necessarily manage to make it to the end of the season. Uh, and obviously the, the, the combination of the media pro deal falling through and uh, coronavirus, which is preventing fans getting to the stadium, is, is really crippling clubs. And the knock-on effect in the transfer window is obviously going to be one that's quite profound. Uh, I don't think you'll see many clubs at all, if, if anybody, investing significantly in their squad. And in fact, most teams will try to uh, try to cut their wage bills and, and sell players as, as much as possible where it's feasible. You know, Robin, one of the things that is, has kind of fascinated me about where Ligue 1 is right now is the fact that we saw during the onset of the pandemic league shut down and start up again. Of course, uh, Ligue 1 famously, along with French soccer, didn't didn't start up at the same time as the as as the other leagues as the other leagues did, and of course that caused uh, a lot of consternation, not just in France, but even I, I think in some some parts of Europe where people were wondering why we were playing soccer during the pandemic. So my question to you is. Unlike a lot of those other leagues, which were busy trying to finish schedules and trying to get, you know, trying to get, just get through to get to get to the other side of last season, how did the French league find itself in a position where, you know, it it, it faced this uh, this this crisis with television? Because you know there was a lot of downtime there where I, I would think uh, a, a smart or a group of smart sports executives would would sort of be making sure that all the I's were dotted and all the T's were crossed before they started up again. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. And I think there's a lot of uh, finger pointing now in France at uh, the, the leaders of uh, the LFP who, who control the league uh, and, and just questioning why they were so uh, lax, I suppose is the word, with regards to the media pro deal. Um you know, obviously, in the past, Media Pro had tried to uh, reach uh, reach terms with Serie A uh, in Italy, and they had failed to because they didn't effectively pass due diligence tests in Italy. And there's there's questions as to why that was allowed to slip through the net in France. Uh, and and you know the, the the part of the reason that French football didn't start up again in in the summer, for, like like the other leagues, like the other Euro- major European leagues was because they were under pressure from MediaPro to start this new deal in August. Uh, and obviously since then it's fallen through. So not only have they lost money in terms of the current deal, but they also lost money in terms of the previous deal because the league season didn't finish. So it's kind of been a double blow to French football and there's, there's a lot of questions being asked of the executives as to why that was allowed to happen, both both in terms of the sort of hindsight point of view and... Um, even even when the deal was signed a couple of years ago, it's it, it is strange how this is all played out. Is, is there a solution? I mean, what what what's going to happen now? Um, is there going to be government? Is the government going to step in and help out some of these French clubs? How 
how are they going to move forward beyond this? Yeah, it's certainly a tricky situation. The government have been uh, reticent to step in, which I think is quite understandable given the the problems that all governments around the world are currently facing at the moment. You know, football and, and private enterprise, particularly when it comes to sports, isn't necessarily top of their priority list at the moment. Um, the league are currently trying to broker a new deal with Canal Plus, who had the, the rights previously and were seen as a very loyal backer of French football. However, the fact that the league have since gone to, to Media Pro or went to Media Pro, uh, that's kind of uh, it's lost them credibility in the eyes of Canal Plus. So that's that's a further problem for the league to, to handle uh, because they're probably not going to get as much as they had for the previous deal. Uh, and I, that's the way they've got to try and work out. They've got to try and broker a new TV deal as quickly as possible. It's not happening as quickly as people would like, and it's probably not going to be as exp- uh, as uh, uh, lucrative even as the previous deal, let alone the Media Pro deal, which was you know by far and away the biggest uh, agreement ever in, in French football. So it's, it's a major, major problem because so many clubs are going to fall short of their budgets and, and how it's resolved is, is is really tricky to see at the moment. You know, one of the, uh, and I know we want to talk about Jonathan David, obviously, in a few minutes, but one of the announcements, uh, recent announcements that, that kind of got my attention, Robin, and I got an awful lot of people's attention as well, and, you know, maybe, uh, it, it made me think that perhaps 2020, we're still in 2020, but... You're going to have to explain to me how this is going to work with Raymond uh, Dominique Dominique and and not because that that is when I look at <laughs> when I look at a combination of president and and manager I'm not certain there's another one like it in in uh, in football it was it it was Canton I think that said <laughs> that called him the worst French national team manager since Louis the 16th if I'm not mistaken <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're in 2020 with Dominic. I think we're back in 2010, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just such a strange sort of out of the blue appointment, and uh, Nantes are, are really in a bit of a bit of crisis at the moment. Uh, and their fans are clearly not happy about this. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know, uh, the fans are, are are in protest against against the club or the club president, and that kind of manifested itself uh, in in their first. Uh, winter session back after the break, which was the first that Dominic took pl- took part in. So, so basically, uh, the fans turned up with a big loudspeaker and, and they played circus music over the top of, of the training <laughs> session, uh, and, it, and that just kind of sums up the whole situation there at the moment. And and as you say, I don't think there's another partnership like it in, in probably in European football at the moment, certainly at the top level, and. You know, it could be a lot of fun. I mean, as a journalist, it's a lot of fun because Dominic comes out and says so much crazy stuff. But you know, as a, as a coach, there's certainly questions hanging over him, particularly since he's not been involved in the game for for ten years. And you know, he's he's sixty eight now. He he technically shouldn't be allowed to take charge of a French team because there's there's a rule in the statutes of the league that says anybody over sixty five has to get special dispensation, and he's been granted this. So. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of sort of uh, branches to this, and it it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, talking French football with Robin Berner here on uh, Kick in the Grass. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at R 
Berner. Uh, so Jonathan David, I mean, we're, we're excited when he made the big signing, uh, record signing, um, you know, record move for a Canadian player, Canadian international to Lille. And it seemed like a, a great fit, a team that's um, done a very good job of growing young players and, and putting them into their project and having success. Now the team is still having success on the field. There's been a lot of problems off of it as well as we've talked about with some of the financial situations but as for David even though he's their record signing he hasn't had a ton of success 18 appearances just two goals and three assists uh, what have you made of his uh, his slow start to his career at Lille yeah I mean uh, it's easy to be critical I think because he's come in and replaced Victor Osserman who was a striker that scored 18 goals in effectively half a season last year. And he's kind of got this, a similar-ish sort of background to Osman in that he's coming from uh, Belgian football. Uh, but the difference is that Osman scored early early on and you know got confidence in, and that just kind of carried on a wave of that. Uh, you know, that lack of an early goal seemed to complicate things for him because obviously he's, he's he's weighed down by this price tag to begin with. And then he doesn't score, he maybe misses a few chances. And, you know, naturally, especially for a young man, you lose confidence. However, I think probably since maybe November, he's, he's shown a bit of a turnaround in terms of his form. Um, it was a match away in the, uh, the Europa League against AC Milan that kind of turned things around for him. He didn't score, but he seemed to feed off the, the confidence of the team. He got an assist in that game. And then in the following match against Lorient, he scored his first league on goal. And he, he kind of built some momentum from there towards the winter break, which probably came at a bad time for him, to be honest. He was starting to really look like a, a perhaps not a sort of 30 million Euro striker, but he was starting to look like a, a very handy striker and a very good option for Leo. And and to be honest, I think he's probably been a little bit un, unfortunate as well. I mean, if you look at a lot of his stats, they're, they're, they're relatively healthy. For example, his shooting accuracy is up about 57% in terms of the shots he's getting on target, which is actually really health, healthy. It's um, one of the best among strikers in the league. However, his conversion rates are only 9%, and you don't need me to tell me that's to tell you that's just simply not what you're after. Um, however, after the bad start, there are definitely positive signs, and I think it's fair to say that things are looking up for him at the moment. Robin, is it possible that... Uh, I'm not going to say that Jonathan... Um, that, that the step up was bigger than he thought it, it would be for him. I, I don't think he's necessarily wired that way, but it, it does kind of reinforce, doesn't it, that there... You know, I think a lot of people have a tendency to, to they, they don't view Liga the same way they view Serie A, La Liga, or, or, or the Premier League. But it still is a notch above the Belgian League, isn't it? It just seems like sometimes we forget that it is, you know, there's still a considerable gap between that, between Liga and, and, the, other, and the other leagues. I mean, it just seems to be, it seems to be such an athletic league for one thing. Yeah, that's, that's certainly true. I mean, it's it's definitely below the sort of big four European leagues, but uh, the, the top teams in France, and I would include Lille in that, are certainly capable of mixing it with the best teams in, in these other leagues. I mean, we, we saw Lille uh, beat AC Milan 
comfortably away from home in, in the Europa League, which was actually AC Milan's record European home defeat. And then last year, of course, two French teams got to the semi-finals of uh, the Champions League uh, in, in Lyon and Paris Saint-Germain. So there, there's definitely quality in Ligue 1 and it's not to be underestimated. It's also a much more defensive league, I would say, than the other big four leagues. Uh, admittedly, there's been more goals in it this year um, for whatever reason, but it, it does tend to be a more uh, negative or a more pragmatic sort of league with less offensive football, which can kind of change the dynamic for strikers to some extent. It makes it more difficult for them, particularly if you're probably playing at a team like Lille, for example, where you're going to have a lot of possession and the onus on, uh, is on you to, to break down other teams. I think that that really complicates matters and I think it's probably something that uh, takes a bit of getting used to and it's probably an underappreciated sort of aspect of the league as well. Lille, um, you know, they, they were forced to sell because of some of the financial problems uh, over December and uh, over $100 million in debt. We see, uh, you know, Liverpool is, is sniffing around Sven Botman, one of the, the young midfielders that has really impressed. Um, are, are they going to be able to stay in this title race or are they going to have to make some difficult decisions here because of the, the financial situation? Well, I don't think the financial situation is perhaps quite as, as drastic as it's made out to be. Uh, certainly the new president, Olivier Letang, has come in and said immediately that the club aren't under any immediate pressure to sell. So that, that means that Botman, unless he gets a big offer, won't necessarily have to go to Liverpool. Um, certainly, if, if, a, if a significant offer came in, then yes, we could see the likes of Botman or Renato Sanchez leaving. Um but I, I mean, they're obviously not going to be signing players and strengthening their team. But I think they're going to be able to keep the core of their squad together. I think, and I mean, it was going to be difficult for them to challenge for the title in any case. Uh, but you know, I, I think they can they can certainly hang on to a Champions League spot. Yeah, for sure. Robin, our guest uh, here on a kick in the grass. Now we've we've had a little bit of time to to assess Maurizio Pochettino um, and his time at PSG. It seemed, you know, it's it's a big job for for a big manager. Um, how do you think this will go for Pochettino at at PSG? Yeah, I mean, he's coming back after sort of being away for eighteen years. He's a former captain of PSG. He was a favourite of the fans who's a centre-back there um, and it's a job that he's he says he's, he's really craved since he came into management I mean it's obviously a very tough job we saw, saw what happened to Thomas Tuchel and that he won the domestic treble got to the final of the Champions League and was still fired um, so that just kind of shows the expectation of, of, of what's required at, at PSG at the moment so that makes it difficult for anyone but Pochettino comes in obviously with this sort of um, I guess he's, he's got some credibility banked in the eyes of, of the PSG fans and that obviously helps his stability um, in, in terms of his job um, I, I don't think we can read too much from this first two games in charge um, PSG drew 1-1 with San Etienne in the first game and then beat Brest 3-0 at the weekend but were rather unconvincing uh, PSG have just got so many injury problems at the moment uh, You know, 8-9 players out including Neymar of course uh, so it's going to be a little while yet before we actually see 
the true PSG under Pochettino and I suspect we might not even see it before the summer uh, and, and I think next season is going to be the, the one for him where he really has to prove himself. Robin, what do, what, what do you think he, he, would, he would like, Pochettino would like to do, maybe not in this transfer window, but in the next one? Like, what, what does he want to do to put his mark on this team? Besides, obviously, besides win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, it's going to be interesting because the big thing with, with Paris Saint-Germain, obviously, at the moment, is their reliance on, on Neymar and Kylian Mbappe. And neither of those players have got a contract past 2022, which means if they don't sign a deal before the summer, they are uh, liable to be sold or leave for free, which obviously PSG won't allow to happen. Uh, so one of the big priorities there will be, or for PSG, will be to sign those players to new contracts if it's all possible. However, you look at somebody like Mbappe particularly, and he's not really a player in the sort of uh, Pochettino style from what we've seen of Poch at, at Spurs, for example. Uh, he's he's not particularly intent in terms of his pressing game, and, and the same goes for Neymar, of course. Um, they're not they, these these guys are, are completely offensively focused, whereas. Pochettino likes players who close down uh, and, and really lead the defence from the front. Um, and, and that means he's possibly, he's either, he's either going to have to try a different style of PSG, which I think is likely because the board will demand in an ideal world that, that Mbappe and Neymar stay, or uh, PSG are going to have to get rid of these guys, which is it seems unlikely. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not what the club want. Um, so in terms of what they've actually got at the moment and what Pochettino would want to add to that, I, I would say he, he would want to add a, a more dynamic presence in midfield. We've seen Dele Alli linked with, with a move to, to PSG and I think we were looking at, at, at Pochettino trying to attract that kind of midfielder, someone who'll break forward and get into the box because that's something that PSG really lack at the moment. Uh, there, there's no, no real goal threat from midfield. It's, it all comes from... Mbappe, Neymar, and to, to a lesser extent, Di Maria and, and Moise Keane. So I, I think we'll see him try to remedy that to some extent. Uh, and, and the defence too, I, I think he'll be after a, a right-back and possibly a left-back as well. Um, but as you suggested, that certainly the defenders are, are probably something that's going to have to wait to, to the summer transfer window. Robin, it's uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for your insights today. Thanks, pleasure. So there's your check-in on France and Jonathan David. Coming up next, we take a look at Italy. Is Juventus's title run coming to an end? That's next on A Kick in the Grass. Back in on A Kick in the Grass, it is Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair. And it's been nine straight years with Juventus atop the table in Serie A. They are going for uh, La Decima, I guess, and trying to get it to number 10. But there's a little thing called uh, AC Milan back in the way, and Zlatan Ibrahimovic, the Serie A title race, is as good as it's been in many years. Joining us now to talk about it is Siavush Falahi of Eurosport. Thanks for this, Siavush. How are you? Uh, all good, all good. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, always happy to talk about Syria. Yeah, it's uh, it's not been the dominant uh, year for Juventus as uh, we all expected. Maybe them going on to their tenth consecutive, but 
here we are, and Milan's got quite the healthy lead atop the table. How, uh, how surprised are you at how the first half of the season has played out? Um, I'm, I'm surprised that so many teams are in the race. Uh, I, I think uh, everyone expected uh, Juve to be starting a bit slower than they did previous season, and, uh, but I don't think that um, anyone expected Milan to keep going as well as they went uh, after the COVID break. And I also didn't think that anyone expected Roma and Napoli and Atalanta and the guys to be to be in it. Because if we look at the standings, you know, we got Milan, of course, leading with three points and Inter three points ahead of Roma. But then we have Juventus and Napoli and Atalanta who have one game less played that could be within six points from first place. So it's a really exciting uh, table. You know, see, I think a lot of people look at Milan and the first thing they think of, obviously, is Zlatan. I, I mean, it's going to be the case wherever wherever he plays. But, you know, the match this weekend, I mean, they had that, that 27 un, match unbeaten run ended by Juve on Wednesday. They come up against a team, Torino, who is you know, basically going to try to, to frustrate them um, and, and, you know, and, 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 and lay back and, and sort of, Essentially, essentially hope that they catch a team that's still looking its wounds after, after losing to Juve. And instead, I thought Milan, Milan put forth a, a thoroughly professional. They put they put forth the type of effort and the type of match that you expect from teams that have a realistic shot of winning something. So my question to you is: Tell us a little bit about Stefano Pioli, and 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 about Milan beyond. You know, beyond simply Zlatan. I think, um, just as you said, they this was a what do you call it? Maturity test, right? Uh, when mm-hmm. everyone was saying, "Well, yeah, with injuries, yeah, without Zlatan, yeah, without Benasser, yeah, without Kier," um, and they've gone on to tackle all of the difficulties that come their way uh, in a good in a good way, right? But then we we didn't know. What would happen when they eventually lost? Because they obviously didn't lose for, you know, seven or eight or nine months. And uh, as you said, I think they meant uh, in spirit Torino, which came from a couple of good results after a very bad period. And I think they won the game very comfortably and easily. And I think the team Milan shows that no matter what challenge is thrown at them, uh, they manage, you know, they, they, they can play without three of their central defenders. They can play without their midfielders. They can play without their top striker and star, and still they throw Calabria in, for example, at midfield, and he goes on to score against Juve. Okay, they didn't win, but you know, it shows that the team is very healthy and very in a very good spirit, and they always put on a performance. I think that's what Pioli has done well, is that he's found a system where it's actually very fun to play no matter where you play. Because I think the, the young guys in Milan, you know, the the first half against Torino, the Liao, uh, Hauge, um, Diaz, um, you know, I, I think they, they enjoy themselves and play some fun football. And every one of them are players that, you know, they can beat their man, they can do dribble, they can do the link-up, the one-twos. So it's a very enjoyable side to watch that has very many weapons. And I think they always perform. I, I can't remember. I, they weren't super good against Benevento, but they grinded out a win. But they find a way to win football matches all the time. And that's very impressive for what Pioli has done. And they 
manage without Slatan as well. How how much has changed the the mentality of the team? He's not the same player he what he is now that he was earlier in his career. Obviously, at his age, but it just feels like he he just completely changed the culture and the mentality of of Milan when he came last January. Yeah, of course. Um, I think. Uh, in in Europe, everyone thought Slatan was finished, and uh, because he went to MLS, and even though MLS is quickly growing, it's a better league now than it was a couple of years ago. A lot of players are taking the step from MLS to to Europe. You know, it's in Europe, it's seen a bit as where top players go to retire. But so when Slatan went there, everyone thought he was actually finished. But uh, we used to have the rights for MLS, and I used to watch them, and I, I thought he always looked good enough but he had that knee injury so he just needed the time to get back and i think when you trigger Zlatan you know when there's a lot of people saying oh he's finished he can't do anything he shouldn't be talking he's playing in a league that nobody cares about in sweden and europe uh, i think that triggers him so when he eventually came back it wasn't you know a Zlatan who was a happy man you know coming to play with the last contract it was a Zlatan who was hungry to show everyone that he still had it and I think that together with the way he trains in practice, I read in an interview where he said, I have a 90-95% win percent in practice. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it's right, but, you know, I can, I can, I can totally, you know, I can, I can imagine that as the guy, as when you play ping pong, he's going to, you know, break the ping pong uh, racket if, if he loses. So Pioli said on, uh, before Zlatan came, he said, uh, you know, if I get Zlatan, he's not only going to be a fantastic player for this team, but the training ground discipline is going to be totally different. And that's just what Zlatan is. I think he expects a lot. He doesn't take a mistake in a very good manner, but eventually that will improve the players. Because if he is on the top and he's been at the top for so long, that's because he's... Um, trained in a way that very few do and I think that him coming in and showing all the young guys that this is what you need to do you know what does Rafael Leao you know in his 20s have for excuse to not do the extra mile the extra kilo the extra intensity on the training ground if 39 year old Slatan is doing that so of course it's a different player he runs less but I think I, I can't remember when he was at last time this decisive you know What's he got? Like 10 goals in six games or something. And he hasn't played for a month and he was out with COVID. So, you know, he's probably playing some of the most decisive football in his career. And it's positively affected this whole group since, since the coronavirus break in, in, in February, March, you know, April, May. See, uh, you know, one of the, the concerns with Andrea uh, Pirlo going into the season, no one doubts that he was a great player, a very popular guy, but like anything else, there were always going to be questions, and there probably will be for a while. He had questions about sort of his, his, his tactical nous, and I'm just, I, I, I'm wondering what you've made of him so far. You know, this is a test for managers, right? It's not just the weird schedule. There's, there's, there's COVID-19 as well. There's a lot of things going on, a lot of things, a lot of things people in the media, you know, we won't, we won't know because a lot of the COVID stuff is kind of is, is off the record or going on behind the scenes. What have you made of him so far? And have you seen a development 
or a transformation in him tactically over this season? I think uh, he's very hard to judge because he has no track record. And mm -hmm. I think his Juventus is very hard to judge because, and that says a lot because, you know, when you watch Juve the last 50 years, you know, you know what you get. You get a solid defense. You get a team that's going to do anything to win. You get a team that is actually really good at winning games, no matter if it's, you know, grinding out the dirt, you know, a tough 1-0 win away against a bottom team or, you know, beating Real Madrid in the Champions League semi-final. That's Juve. I think Pirlo this year, I have a very hard time getting an exact picture of what his Juventus is because it feels like a quite fragile team that can let in goals against any team and that can lose against any team. But it's also the team that beat Barcelona 3-0 in the Champions League. So I haven't made much of Pirlo as coach, as tactical manager so far. I just think he has the by far best team in, in Serie A. I think they're sometimes playing decent football. I just think that they are more fragile than I can remember them uh, for a very long time because I see a lot of the bottom and mid teams, you know, actually believing they got a chance, actually thinking, yeah, we can get a point here, we can score a goal here, we can maybe score two goals. And that hasn't happened for very long. I'm not only talking about Sarri, but under Allegri under Conte, uh, they've, they've had some managers that, you know, you, teams came into the game knowing they were going to get beaten. So I, I can't really judge him so far. I think they look good sometimes and they look really bad sometimes. But if I have to, like, do a main point, I think Juve looks more fragile than they've done. And that's somehow something I've made of Pirlo's Juve. Cristiano Ronaldo has, has been a um, fantastic individual for for Juventus the numbers are incredible um, at the same time see since his 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 come his party in Serie A I guess you could call it, um, it Juventus has not progressed as a team how, how do we judge that signing if if they don't end up winning a Champions League with Cristiano Ronaldo in the squad um so uh, Juve before Cristiano came was a team that didn't land very many big superstar players or, you know, a delicht type of player, you know, a young player going to a top club. They they weren't doing that kind of signing. And I think Juve has always been a team, you know, a solid team. Not maybe the best team always, but, you know, uh, individually or quality-wise, I think we have Platini, we have Zidane, but then you don't have so many big stars, individual stars in Juve's history. And signing Cristiano Ronaldo was a very big step away from what Juve is. And Juve has always been described as a, the biggest provincial club in the world because, you know, they were very Italian, very good in Italy, not really very good in, um, in Europe and not really very famous in Europe, even though all their success in, compared to Inter and Milan uh, and the Premier League clubs. I think signing Ronaldo... Uh, was um, always going to create a bit of problems for them because they had Higuain and Dybala. 
So it's very difficult to have Higuain, Tibala, and Cristiano Ronaldo at the same time, which I think was proven also last season and this season when they offloaded Higuain. Um, I think if so, what, what we know, right, is that Juve won the Scudetto with Anerka and Bentner and Del Piero and Vucinic and um, Matri. You know, uh, strikers like that. They won the Scudetto when they had Tevez and Morata. So they've always won the Scudetto, but they always also managed to win the cup, more or less. Um, they haven't done that since Ronaldo came, but and they haven't progressed longer in the Champions League than they did before. Uh, however, like and based on that, sportively, you know, you could say it's a failure. But I think we have to judge Ronaldo signing maybe in ten or fifteen years because. Um, uh, when Inter signed Ronaldo, I call him the real Ronaldo because I grew up with Ronaldo, but Ronaldo <laughs> Nazario, um, he cost, you know, he broke the transfer record at the time. And, you know, Inter went on to win a UEFA Cup. They were very close to win Scudetto and stuff like that. But they always sold out the stadium. They probably gained, you know, 100, 200, maybe a million fans all over the world who, you know, then went on to be Inter fans for their life. And I think we'll have to judge Ronaldo in that way in, you know, five, ten years. Because the growth that Juve has done as a club and the growth that they will do thanks to Ronaldo in these years, I think that's very interesting to look at. Sportively, however, I'm, I'm, I actually agree if they don't win the Champions League, um, Juve as club. I, I won't blame Ronaldo for it. Because I think he has actually always done his job in the Champions League, not in the Champions League. He's always scored. He's always been there. But Juve's club hasn't managed to be at the high level that Ronaldo needs to be the man in Champions League, which he was for Real when they won four in a row, three in a row, four in a row. Yeah. You know, see, going into this, going into this weekend, Antonio Conte said that... Uh, the match against Roma, I think his quote was going to be a moment to measure his team's ambitions with facts and not words. They draw 2-2. Uh, that is, uh, I believe Roma, I believe that's what they, they only collected two points uh, in matches against Milan, Juve, Atlanta, and Napoli this year. Um, given up like 15 goals, 13 or 15 goals in those matches. So I'll ask you, did that, that, that performance this weekend, does that say more about Roma or does it say more about Inter? Um, I think it says a lot about both teams. I think uh, Roma can create problems for every team in the league. I think they, they play very good football. They're a very solid and, and good team. Um, I think Inter um, did enough to, to win this game. I think Antonio Conte himself probably is the main reason uh, why they didn't keep the lead because Inter went down 1-0 with the first shot that Roma had uh, after creating some really good chances. They came out in the second half playing the best football I've seen uh, Conte's Inter play in a very long time. They were just all over the field creating chances, scoring chances, causing havoc and then I think Conte did three very defensive uh, and bad substitutions, which lowered the team, gave Roma the signal that they could go all in without, you know, suffering on the break, and they they let in two two. So overall, 
a draw away at Roma isn't a bad result, uh, you know. But uh, when you have a 2-1 in the end and you play so well and then you just change the game in the opposite way that you'd want, um, you can never be happy. And I think Inter really needed that win to show that they're for real and also to show uh, because this weekend Inter faces Juve. So if you go into the Juve game with a win that you actually showed that you deserved, you actually show Juve as well. We're, we're here to win. We're, we're to be... Um, you can count on Inter in this race. And uh, I think uh, they didn't manage to do that. And I think Juve is a much harder game. We also have the Cup uh, tomorrow where all teams are involved. So I think... I think Inter showed that they might not be it, <laughs> even though performing some very good football. And Roma showed that they're a tough team to beat for everyone in 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 the league. Uh, See, so yeah, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for your insights today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, the craziest manager in all of football, and maybe uh, the craziest <laughs> coach in all the world, Antonio Conte. Never never a dull moment with him. <laughs> I love it. Oh, he's the best God. Jeff I, I I don't know is there is there a comparable would this be like uh, uh, oh, I, I don't know I don't know I, I, I don't think there is a comparable no I, I was uh, you guys were talking I was, I was I was trying to think I mean you know we talked a little earlier about Raymond Dominic but he's, he's just <laughs> that that's on a different level I mean somebody who is who is still considered to be you know a, a legit option as a coach I I, I can't think of any other. I, I really can't. He is uh, he is soccer's version of Mike Keenan. That, that's that's just the the way that I've kind of looked at him. Uh, it is Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair, uh, a kick in the grass. Coming up, injury time. We take a look at Germany and uh, some stories closer to home in MLS. It is a kick in the grass. Final segment on a kick in the grass. Uh, no Premier League this past weekend, so uh, can't shout out anybody in the uh, fantasy Premier League pool with us. But uh, make sure to get your lineups in. And if you do want to join me and Jeff in fantasy Premier League, PremierLeague.com, hit the fantasy tab, join the league using the code PPIBD6. We give a shout out every week to the highest scoring manager. All right. Bundesliga. I've been thinking that Bayern's going to run away with it. They're up 2-0 on Gladbach on Friday. All of a sudden, whammo! Gladbach comes back, wins the match, 3-2. Incredible thriller. Borussia Dortmund, uh, they beat Leipzig, get themselves back into the title race. Uh, did did I anoint Bayern a little bit too early here, Jeff? Oh, no. Um, I, <laughs> I, no, I don't, I, I don't think fair. so. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think at all. Um, you know, look that again, I, uh, as I tell people about Bayern all the time, they've played so much football since the, you know, the, the restart after the pandemic. I, I just expect that there will be dips in form this year. We've already seen it. Bottom line is even with that loss, there is no, well, I'll put it to you this way. There is no match this year in the Bundesliga where Bayern won't be favored from this point on, e even with that loss. So I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't read any, I don't read anything into it at all. Um, at some point, 
you are going to see this team, and I really believe this, at some point you're going to see this team hit its stride and uh, and run the table here. I, I think uh, Dortmund still, uh, you know, I, I know they made the managerial change, but uh, they, they've got to find a manager that, that gets – uh, more of a collective ethos going there. Like they, they can still be brilliant because Holland and, and Sancho can do their thing. They've got so many individual talents there, but they've just got to find a way to be more cohesive. And that way they might be able to find the consistency they need uh, to eventually really challenge Bayern for the title. Um, but Erling Holland, uh, he's got my early vote for player of the year in the Bundesliga. I, I, I know he's going to have, uh, some some comp- competition there, but man, was he incredible uh, over the weekend and has been for a long time. Speaking of incredible, how about uh, Kyle Laren finding his footing at Besiktas in Turkey? Had a four-goal game last week, scored again at the weekend, and uh, is right there for the golden boot race, Jeff. I uh, Given the way his career started at Besiktas, I, I didn't know if Kyle Laren had this in him. Oh, I I'm, I'm not certain too many people did. Um, I want to, by the way, at this point, give a shout out to our friend Peter Galindo, uh, mm-hmm. who, who in November had, a, had, had kind of a fascinating deep dive into Kyle Laren. And, you know, look, we know Kyle Laren uh, was loaned out to Belgian side last season. He played very well. He was used as a second striker. He had seven goals, four assists, 29 appearances, played his way back into the, the thinking of uh, Besiktas. And as Peter points out, very early this season, Besiktas made the tactical decision to essentially position him more as a left winger, or at least as an inside forward cutting in from the left wing, not a left winger, but moved him out to the left of the pitch. And almost immediately, if you look at his heat map, almost immediately you started to see a more consistent uh, performance from Laren. Now that doesn't mean that he's always played that position. It's not the reason that he's necessarily scoring all these goals right now. But my sense is that you are now seeing a player. Keep in mind, this guy's 25, right? Mm-hmm. You are now seeing a player who has regained the form he once had. And if and if you're John Herdman and you're looking at Kyle Laren and Jonathan uh, Jonathan David regardless of what he's doing now, and of course, Alfonso Davies. This, this gets back to this point we keep talking about with, with Canadian soccer. I think we're now at a point where we don't automatically have to assume that Canada is going to have an issue scoring goals. I think there's enough options for John Herdman right now that, uh, that, that that's just not an issue. And, and if, if, if Kyle Lahren has, has sort of resurrected his career, I guess as much as you can at the age of 25. My God, that's a great thing for this team going forward. It really is. Yeah, and so much about this team is going to depend on the midfield and certainly the back line uh, when they uh, get closer to World Cup qualifiers uh, later on this year. And finally, uh, Greg Vanny officially announced as LA Galaxy manager. Um, Hopefully we'll be able to get him on the show uh, in in the near term, but uh, it it felt a little bit weird, um, but the LA Galaxy, I mean, given you know, the reputation Vanny has created for himself is how he built up TFC over the last number of years. Um, the LA Galaxy uh, probably should be back on the radar for, for MLS dominance uh, if they give Vanny the, uh, the time to put these pieces together. Yeah, a lot of similarities, I, I think, in some ways in terms of ownership 
you know, he's going to have money. I mean, he, he's going to have money and resources the way he had money and resources at TFC. Um, I would argue that uh, the Galaxy are probably in, a, in better shape than TFC were when he took over. I yeah. think one thing Greg Vanny has now is he's got a reputation beyond he can't be questioned. So he will come into L.A. and he will be the guy. You know, his stint in Toronto proved him, proved that he's capable of being that type of guy who can command, uh, who can command a locker room with some big personalities. And I think he's going to have a lot of success in L.A. And then it's no surprise I the, the day that he left, I think everybody just assumed that he was going to go back to L.A. And, uh, you know, we still await, we still await uh, the announcement of his replacement at TFC. And uh, Phil Neville is apparently being courted by David Beckham to be the next Inter-Miami manager. That, that should be fun, Jeff. Well, why not? Phil Neville, <laughs> Gary Neville, Paul Scholes. I mean, is anybody surprised? Yeah, I mean, look, hey, I'm Man U, class of 92. I'm all about the class of 92. Yeah. But at some point, move on. <laughs> at, at some point, move on. And, uh, you know, look, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, Phil Neville is going to be... It, it's going to be interesting seeing Phil Neville adapt to MLS because we have often talked about this. MLS takes the measure, has taken yeah. the measure of pr some pretty smart coaches. It's not anything Phil Neville has been used to before. So, uh, and you know, Phil Neville, frankly, hasn't always handled uh, a you know a, a a shift, a profound cultural shift, all that well when it comes to coaching. Uh, he is Jeff Blair. I am Dan Richo. We are A Kick in the Grass. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, on Apple, on Spotify. Please leave a review while you're there. If you do like the show, we appreciate it very much. Also, subscribe. That way you never miss any editions of the program. We release new episodes each and every Monday. Back next week on the Sportsnet Radio Network.